Hi everybody, this is Ben and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this is not professional medical advice and does not represent the views of my medical school. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ben's Week in Medical School podcast. This is episode 210, and this has been week 70-70 of medical school. It's kind of a mix of personal and scientific today, and I have a recommendation for another podcast with an excellent first episode that some of my classmates have started. It features one of my favorite faculty members from medical school telling a story about making a big mistake while caring for a patient and how he recovered from that. And today I'm going to talk about rickets, and I would like to talk about the first autopsy that I've witnessed, which is an experience I had just a few weeks ago. And lastly, there are dozens of intoxicated Santas and Christmas sweater wearers milling about in downtown Kalamazoo today for a bar crawl. So hopefully I can keep that out of the stream. Let's get to it. So the medical establishment thought rickets in America was kind of a thing of the past, but it's actually coming back because people are no longer getting enough UV light exposure because of high SPF sunscreen. So we actually learned about rickets in the gastrointestinal unit of our course, along with in the, um, in the musculoskeletal part of the course. Rickets is making a comeback in the United States, and it's due to improper mineralization of the growth plates at the end of bones in kids. And it's caused by low vitamin D levels. So it leads to bow legs and other deformities and other calcium-related problems. Vitamin D is different than other vitamins because we actually can make it inside of our bodies without um, needing specific sources, but it still is stuck with its name as a vitamin. You can get it from fatty fish, organ meats, egg yolks, and lots of things because we actually fortify milk and grains with vitamin D also. But even if you don't have good vitamin D sources in your diet, you can actually use natural UV light hitting the skin to turn cholesterol that our bodies have and make and consume into vitamin D. Nutrition in the U.S. is not always great, and recently people are wearing more and more high SPF sunscreen that blocks UV light, which is great for battling against skin cancer. But Ricketts is making a comeback, and sunscreen is one of the main reasons. Um... So I've heard this talking point in a few lectures, so I guess it's something that parents of kids need to be aware of, and of course, pediatricians and doctors. It's good to know that there are other conditions that can cause low vitamin D availability in the body. For example, celiac disease reduces the efficiency of the gut at absorbing nutrients like vitamin D from the diet. Another rarer form of rickets is passed down through families by genetics via a faulty enzyme in the vitamin D synthesis pathway. Vitamin D recently has been talked about a lot because it actually has immune support functions. And there are actually ongoing clinical trials to see if vitamin D can help the immune system deal with um, COVID-19 infection. So one last thing to note is unlike the B vitamins and vitamin C, vitamin D is fat soluble. So it sticks around in the body and can actually build up it's possible to take in too much vitamin D in the diet via pretty much only via um, taking vitamin D supplements. 
So it's a good idea not to take, you know, 10,000 times the daily dose of vitamin D with the goal of being more resistant to COVID. Also, it's still a good idea to wear sunscreen, um, but maybe SPF 30 instead of SPF 125 or something if your skin can tolerate it. One of the really cool things I wanted to talk about today was a clinical shadowing experience that I had a few weeks back. I had the opportunity to shadow uh, one of our forensic pathologists. I think I may have mentioned before that this is an experience I was really looking forward to. For my observation experience, I watched one of our forensic pathologists as he conducted an autopsy on a young 20-something male patient who had died the prior night from what was thought to be a drug overdose. And my plan isn't to just dive into tons of gruesome details because, well, that really isn't the whole point of what I wanted to talk about. Um, But one of the interesting things about medical school is that I think my internal barometer of what is gruesome is no longer very reliable compared to the general population of friends and family and and podcast listeners. I guess that's the warning for this part of the episode. Yeah, you might think it's a little bit gruesome. The experience had a big impact on me. And right now, it's only the second newly dead body that I've ever seen. So our work with cadavers and the anatomy lab is quite a bit different because those bodies have been subjected to preservation methods. And they're also not recently deceased because of the preparation time and the lead time before we actually work with them. And also, they um, often died late in life of old age or some malady, but they kind of had this plan to donate their body to science. And a forensic autopsy, almost by definition, is unplanned. Psychologically, the autopsy carried with it a big confrontation with the fickleness and tenuousness of life. The person who was on, whose body was on the autopsy table did not expect to die and was at the age where he probably never even thought about dying. Less than 24 hours before I was seeing his body, he had been picking up friends or getting pizza, sending texts, just doing normal things. I think the science and the personal effect of the experience are both pretty interesting. So I, I'm going to probably weave some of both into to the next few minutes. But this is, I'll start off by just talking about what the autopsy was, what we did. I'll use the royal we sometimes, but I wasn't personally involved in completing any of the actions of the autopsy. I was just there in an observation role. The autopsy technician cut off the clothing and then a photographer took digital photos with the path lab camera of the entire body front and back, including tattoos and scars and fingers and toes. And this can help if there's any doubt of the identity of the body, um, though that wasn't the case here. Uh, The pathologist briefly discussed with us the cardinal signs of death, which are rigor mortis, which is when the muscles lock into whatever position they are when life ceases, Incidentally, you can actually break through the rigor mortis and unlock the muscles by pulling against the joints. So um, once the muscle is released, it won't tense back up or anything. It's just that a muscle, as it stops having new energy, it, get, it locks into whatever place it's in at that point in time. 
actually the, the pathologist and autopsy tech had to unflex the arms because they were crossed over the chest. And the pathologist asked me if I, if I wanted to try, and I kind of chickened out from that offer of unflexing the, the rigor mortis bicep. Um, I think I felt sort of icky, like somehow I could accidentally damage the body or break one of the bones by trying to leverage open the stuck bicep. Anyway, the pathologist did it instead. So a second sign of death is algor mortis, which is the cooling of the body to the ambient room temperature. So if the room is hot, actually, the body will be hot. Um, but if the room is cold, the body will be cold. And this body felt cold to the touch. The room was probably 68 degrees Fahrenheit, but the body had probably been in the cooler storage facility before coming out for the autopsy. A third sign of death is livor mortis, livor mortis, which is settling of the blood due to gravity into whatever parts of the body are the lowest, the dependent parts of the body. So after a certain time post-death, the blood will stop moving around liquidly, and thus you can tell if a body's been moved from the position it previously occupied. At the time we autopsied this body, you could still blanch the skin where the blood had settled, so kind of it was still liquid. Okay, so next came the main autopsy incision, which starts with a Y shape. The autopsy tech cuts from the front of the left shoulder down toward the middle of the chest, and then from the right shoulder down to the same spot, and then finally straight down from the sternum past the belly button to the pubic bone, which is in the middle between the hip bones. I felt a bit emotionally charged the whole time. It was kind of scary and violating to see this dead body cut open. And I think in part, you know, I couldn't help but imagining myself in the place of him on the table and the people that I would have left behind or imagining myself if my, uh, my loved one was on the table and dealing with the loss of that person. But it took about two minutes, two to three minutes to make those cuts, I think, and, and deepen them to get down to the bone over the chest um, and expose the abdominal organs so the pathologist could have a look inside. They might have also at that same time then moved directly to cutting open the rib cage and opening the chest cavity as well, but I, I can't remember. I think they started with either the heart or the liver, and one by one they cut out each organ and weighed it and passed it on to the pathologist to continue examining it. And the pathologist, um, he was wearing a cutting glove, um, which you might see in the restaurant industry, which is like chain mail made out of Kevlar for your hand so that he could hold the organ and slice it into sections while holding the organ. One by one, sliced through each organ, the liver, the heart, the kidneys, the spleen. Also looking through at each point to see if there was any notable pathology, um, any sort of changes that were caused by disease or trauma. And then he also cut off small pieces, which would then be used to create microscope slides. And also cut off another piece or two of each organ that would be put into preservative in case they needed more specimens for further analysis on down the road. This technique is kind of standard. There's another technique 
for autopsy called the Rokitansky method, where some of the dissection is actually done in place inside of the body. And this might lower some risk of infection if the body was suspected of having a contagious disease. After all of the organs have been removed and weighed and sampled and examined, I believe they're all put back into place to accompany the rest of the body onward to the funeral home. A couple of interesting tidbits. Before they start the autopsy, they do a full body x-ray. And this is really helpful in trauma cases. Um, you can see the entire skeleton all at once. It's also really useful if there might be a bullet somewhere that they know that they want to find and extract for further analysis or a piece of jagged metal for everyone's safety and also just to give a complete understanding of the cause of death. So as I mentioned, all the body parts are kind of reassembled and put back with the body because after a forensic autopsy, the body still can be viewed in an open casket funeral. My take on points from the experience were that um, the body really is a shell <laughs> and that after a person dies, their body starts to lose meaning very quickly and on a vastly different timeline, of course, than the memory of that person. I was reminded of the five stages of grief proposed by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I thought about that and I wondered, did I go through my own small, empathetic five stages of grief for the person whose body was there before us and because it's my, my first autopsy. I think that maybe I was sort of feeling a little bit of the denial phase. Oh, the five stages, by the way, are um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It's just a model of how people maybe typically deal with grief. At the moment when the pathologist asked me whether I wanted to help unflex the rigor mortis in the arms to expose the chest, maybe that was a little bit of denial that was causing me to chicken out from coming to terms with the dead person in front of me. I think it's a stretch to say that I felt uh, the other stages of grief, like bargaining or depression. But after examining each organ of the young man's body in detail, and, and discussing anatomical features of each of them with our pathologist, I certainly had to accept that the man whose body this was was no longer present and that the body had basically become science or knowledge or history, but it was no longer a person. I once sort of naively said to the pathologist, you don't really have a patient, right? Because they're already dead. And he said, no, the patient is the family members of the person that died. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, the autopsy is for the living patients that want some closure and understanding about what the circumstances really were of the death. All right, that's all I've got for today. Thanks everybody for listening. And do check out the show notes for a link to the podcast that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. It's called ward stories it looks kind of like war stories it's the ward stories podcast thanks everybody for listening if you have any questions or or thoughts for the show please email me my address is ben at bensweek.com 
Thanks to David Funkhauser for the intro and outro music. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.